News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. When it comes to the total of COVID-19 cases all over the world now, we're sitting at something like 27.5 million cases, and that number continues to go up every single day. But that's among humans. And maybe you didn't realize, but there's a lot of work being done to try to protect our closest animal relatives from being ravaged by this virus as well. So what does that work look like? We are going to find out right now. Joining us is Jackie Sunderland-Groves, a scientific researcher with UBC's Faculty of Forestry's Wildlife Coexistence Lab and a senior advisor with the Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation. Jackie, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I would imagine that not a lot of people understand how much of this work is being done. Do you think that's true? Um, probably, yes. Um, I mean, I don't know how much people really know about, you know, great apes, for example, which is what we're going to talk about today. But, um, of course, you know, everything that, that's happening with COVID and everything that we're seeing unfold for humans also has a trickle-down effect to wildlife populations, ultimately. So are great apes, are they affected by viruses like COVID-19 similarly to how humans are? Um, well, they are. For COVID-19, we don't know yet how they're going to be affected. Um, but basically, all great apes being our closest living relative, they're susceptible to all the same diseases as humans get. Um, so diseases including um, Ebola, for example, polio, polio-like diseases and mange, um, measles, uh, common colds, influenza, tuberculosis, um, and you know, all respiratory diseases that humans contract at the moment can be passed on to great apes. So at the moment, the key message is that we, we think that this is going to impact um, great ape populations. And so other respiratory viruses that affect great apes, does it, do they have the similar reaction to humans have or can it be deadlier? Um, it really does depend. I mean, um, a few years ago in Uganda, they had an outbreak of a virus which turned out to be a human common cold. Um, I can't remember how many animals got sick. It was around 40-something. At least four of them died. Um, But again, with COVID-19, it's so new, we really don't know how it's going to play out. Can you give me an idea of the type of work that's being done to protect great apes right now? Yeah, so um, similarly to humans, um, as soon as the COVID-19 pandemic became, um, you know, so pronounced, you know, countries started locking down their their borders, for example, um, People that were working with great apes scaled back their research, um, conservation programs, um, and national parks closed their borders. Um, and where you couldn't close borders or where you did need presence of humans still, a new kind of um, system of, of, of PPE kits and self-protection and protecting others um, came into play. So a lot, of, lot more face masks were being used, a lot smaller groups um, in terms of patrol groups or researchers, no contact with with great apes at all um, and of course that's possible in some cases but not in all cases where you have national parks for example that rely heavily on game guards to, to protect nature within those parks um, they still have to go out and work they can't stay home um, if they do stay home it means that the park is completely unprotected which then enables right. possible illegal hunting to take place Right, but I guess the one benefit is the lack of tourists right now Yes and no. I mean, the problem is um, many great ape programs in, in different countries now, they rely heavily on great ape ecotourism. So, for example, mountain gorilla viewing or orangutan um, viewing. 
Um, and when those revenue streams dry up, it's really, really difficult for local people and for the local conservation organisations and for the governments as well. So then, as you mentioned, then the poaching must become an even greater challenge because that is money. Well, that's certainly a big risk. And they are finding in some areas, some national parks, that, for example, rhino hunting has gone up. Um, yes, there are a lot of challenges um, for not just great apes, but all wildlife. So then what is it, the kind of work that you do as well and other researchers in terms of protecting great apes from these viruses, how do you do that? Um, well, what we've done in Indonesia, uh, the teams out there have heightened protection measures even further. So those who can stay home are staying home. Only essential personnel are allowed in the rescue centers. Um, of course, you know, there were always things in place to ensure the disease transmission didn't occur from humans to the orangutans. Um, but all of those measures have now been heightened um, significantly. Um, and doing doing the same things as we're doing as humans. You know, if you're sick, don't go to work. If you have a temperature, don't go to work. If any of your family are ill, stay at home. Um, and just managing the, the, the animals that we care for as, as best as we can. Well, listen, best of luck, Jackie. Thank you for telling us about it. Thank you very much for having me on. That is Jackie Sunderland-Groves, a scientific researcher with UBC's Faculty of Forestry's Wildlife Coexistence Lab, also a senior advisor with the Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation. They're doing a lot of work, which right now is going kind of unnoticed and unsung about protecting great apes from COVID-19 because they just don't even want to risk it. It could be so devastating to them. Uh, But the lack of tourism as well is an interesting part of this that probably didn't realize probably thought lack of tourism was a good thing and then it turns out no the money generated from there actually goes a long way for conservation efforts as well so uh, well once again one of these unintended consequences of dealing with COVID-19 right this is mornings with Simi now I may have noticed every once in a while recently that my jaw seems a bit sore and I think that's probably pretty common right now. A lot of people are grinding their teeth more than they ever have, particularly in the last six months. And you know what? Dentists have noticed this too. There has been a definite uptick in the number of people going to the dentist saying that they have you know, cracked teeth. We wanted to talk to a dentist about this. So joining us now is Dr. Kyle Khaled, who's a dentist and president of the Ontario Alliance of Dentists. Dr. Khaled, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Have you noticed this problem? People showing up with cracked teeth? You know, it's uh, it's really amazing. Actually, we had literally yesterday, I had a fellow come in who couldn't eat his food because the teeth had so worn down that the nerves became exposed. And, and we are actually seeing it. I, uh, as president of the Ontario Alliance of Dentists, I get calls from a lot of dentists, and, and they're all saying the same thing. The number of emergencies, sensitive teeth is way up during this um, sort of COVID period. It's true. Okay, so then what are we doing to make this happen? (laughs) Well, unfortunately, um, the stresses that we're experiencing as a nation, as as human beings really these days, have caused a number of problems. Number one, we are grinding our teeth. Uh, I I read an article recently in in the paper talking about the number of people with sleep disorders these days, nightmares, nighttime sweats. Uh, You know, we're worried about our kids going back to school. We're worried about our jobs. We're worried about the economy and so on and our health as well. And um, people are taking that out on their bodies. And the jaw muscle, by the way, I don't know if you realize, the jaw muscle is the strongest muscle in the human body, that, that jaw muscle right there in your, in your upper and lower jaw that connects them. So it really takes grunt. And that's really one of the reasons why this is all happening now. So we're kind of clenching. We're clamp- yeah. we're like, is, Are we doing that in our sleep? Or are we doing it during the day? Most people will do it during their sleep, only because they don't notice it during their sleep. 
Um, I do see people, though, doing it. For example, my father used to do it. He used to do while he drove. He drove, he drove long distances sometimes. And I'd look over at him, and I'd see his jaw muscles really going, like sort of up and down, up and down, up and down. So uh, it's hard to diagnose yourself when you're sleeping, obviously. So what happened is we get a lot of uh, spouses who say, that their, their husbands or wives are, um, are grinding their teeth. The, the, the actual spouse doesn't realize it, but the, the other right. one does. The so, other way we, uh, we notice it is, is the teeth get flat. So when you look at your teeth, they have those bumps and grooves on them, but a dentist will look and say, hey, you grind your teeth. How do you know? Well, they're all flat, literally. Weird. That is a weird one for dentists to see there. Yeah, yeah, so, it is, yeah. So how else would I know? Like, if I, if I thought, am I doing this? Like, am I a problem? Like, would my teeth be sore? How would I notice that I'm doing right. something like this? So, yes, you're right. Number one, your tooth would be sore. You'd say, hey, they're generally sensitive. I had a coffee this morning. kind of hurt. I had ice cream the other day. It really hurt. Where, where historically it hasn't. Number two, your jaw muscle itself. You'd wake up in the morning your jaw, you kind of open wide, you say, oh, that really hurts when I open wide, or when I touch my cheek and that muscle part there where it's thick, that kind of hurts too. So those are the two most obvious ways. The best way, though, really is probably see the dentist, um, because the dentist will tell you if you are grinding, he'll do a muscle exam, and, or she'll check your tooth surfaces uh, to see if they are showing signs of wear. And we do recognize them now as dentists. There's various ways we can look in the mouth, and I can tell right away, this, this fellow grinds his teeth, right. or, or, or this fellow doesn't. Is there something that we can do to prevent this? Like, if we now that we have an awareness, is there something we can do at nighttime or anything to yes, make this better? Yes, yes. a few things. Uh, first of all, you can get an appliance. You remember when we were kids, we had those little retainer type things. Yeah, I hated those, though, Dr. Collett, yeah, and people know, don't like wearing them. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is there's a couple of new ones that are very small. We call them miniature ones. They just go on the front teeth. They're literally maybe one inch wide, two centimeters wide. So that helps. Number two... I'll say counseling in a way. So habit breaking, uh, work on your habit. Um, I do talk to counselors and medical doctors these days, and a lot of them are saying, wow, you know, patients are coming in with a lot of stress, and they're, they're undergoing meditation practices, uh, habit breaking practices. Uh, so that's actually an alternative as well. Sometimes uh, medicines, drugs, uh, muscle relaxants will also help uh, when right. diagnosed and, and prescribed by a dentist. So that's another possibility as well. You know, as I'm listening to you talk and describe all these things, I realize that I think I do some of them. Like I've noticed increased pressure along my jawline and kind of up into mm. my sinuses. And I'm wondering if I'm do- if I'm clenching at night too. You know what? These days with this quarantine stress and this pandemic stress, I wouldn't be surprised if a majority of the population was undergoing some kind of oral stresses. And there's no question. You know, the patients, they'll call me on the phone as you're doing here, and they'll say, hey, I'm scared to come in, though. Like, yeah, am I going to get the virus at your office? I think patients have to realize that the standard of care in dentistry in Canada, BC, and Ontario is so high now. Our sterility levels are still high. Hospital grade, if not better, honestly. Uh, the, the new rules are so strict on us. So I don't want patients to be scared to go and see their dentist. I'd really suggest yeah. that they go. And, and not worry, because leaving a problem, this is another thing, by the way, is I'll see small chips, patient comes in three months later, and it's a giant chip, yeah. way more effort and cost to fix. So go to your dentist and, and get, them, get them to take a look. You know what? I'm actually going to make my appointment today. Dr. Khaled, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> well, thank you.
All right, that's Dr. Kyle Khaled. You too. That's he's a dentist and president of the Ontario Alliance of Dentists. I've been reading about this recently, where dentists are seeing a, a huge increase in the number of patients showing up. Uh, with cracked teeth, chipped teeth, uh, problems because they've been grinding their teeth. And you may have never done this before. And you may not even know that you're doing it, but you're clenching your jaw at nighttime. Uh, and it's causing so many problems now, whereas dentists didn't see it very often. They're now seeing it, they said, every single day, a patient coming in and telling them that. And listening to Dr. Cullen describe the symptoms there, yeah, I felt it in my jaw for sure. And I'm now going to make an appointment with my dentist. And he made an excellent point there as well. Out of all the cases, haven't heard of any, you know, of an outbreak at a dentist's office or anything like that. So it is, you know, you feel pretty good with all the PPE and everything that they're wearing. I'm making my appointment today for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Where were you 19 years ago this morning? I know exactly where I was. At this point, at 7.08, I was already glued to my TV watching what was unfolding in the United States in New York City at that point. Today, of course, is the anniversary of that day, the attack on 9-11, and there are ceremonies going on despite the pandemic. Uh, They're trying to make it work. We're going to find out how they're doing that now with the help of Global News reporter Jennifer Johnson, who joins us now. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Cindy. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So they're they're still doing these ceremonies, I see, but how are they managing to make this work today? Well, everything's really being done virtually today because of the COVID-19 pandemic. President Trump is speaking in Shanksville, Pennsylvania this morning, and Joe Biden's in New York City, along with Vice President Mike Pence. And then Joe Biden will also go to Shanksville, Pennsylvania this afternoon. He's going to talk around uh, 2 o'clock, uh, again, a, a virtual uh, commemoration and uh, <clears throat> excuse me it's uh it's where united airlines 93 went down it's a small town in pennsylvania about 200 and some people live in the town and um but they do have a memorial in the field uh in the area where the plane went down and so it's a different way of commemorating 9-11 with all the virtual um speeches and and celebrate commemorations, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the new reality in America because of COVID-19. It certainly is. But as you mentioned, you had Joe Biden and Mike Pence both in New York today, but I noticed everybody was wearing their masks. That's right. I, you know, we, this every day this pandemic, you know, it's just more bad news. This morning, Dr. Fauci said everybody needs to hunker down in the fall and the winter Expecting this to get worse. We have 193,000 Americans dead so far. Several states are still seeing spikes in new cases. And so, yes, they are wearing their masks, um, you know, particularly out of respect to New York City, which is, you know, which lost the most number of people um, in the pandemic. So, you know, as I said, it's just a new reality. And is that pretty much it for today then, just virtual and that's all they're going to be doing? I mean, there's ceremonies all across the United States, uh, you know, wreaths being laid and speeches being made and churches um, tolling bells. Um, but I, I, it's interesting, um, you know, the, the candidates are both going back and forth to Pennsylvania a lot. It's a big swing state in this election. President Trump barely carried Pennsylvania in 2016. So, um, you know, not only is it an important day on 9-11, but it's a state that the candidates 
have gone to several times recently and will continue to go to a lot between now and November 3rd. Right. And did all did both campaigns mm-hmm. kind of suspend advertising today? I, I had been reading yesterday that that's what happened in 2016. Both the Trump campaign and the Clinton campaign said, we're not going to run any ads on, on 9-11. You know, I, I have been working all morning and I haven't uh, had my TV on. It wouldn't surprise me if they did suspend the ads. But, you know, it's interesting. I live in Maryland, which is a heavy Democrat state. So we are spared a lot of the um, ads with the candidates because they kind of think it's a wasted vote on both sides. But I hear from my friends in Virginia and who live in D.C. that, you know, their, their airwaves are bombarded. I would think today they would take a break from it. Um, I'm fascinated um, by that, though, Jennifer, that the advertising is so targeted there like that. Yeah, they, you know, they always, it will see some, but they won't spend a lot of money in Maryland. I mean, I don't live that far out of D.C., but, you know, as I said, it's a a heavy Democratic state, even though we have a Republican governor. um, But they, you know, they just don't spend a lot of money in the state on advertising. So I generally look at them online to see what's going on. Isn't that because I see them all when I watch the American TV channels and I watch a lot of them from, say, Massachusetts, right? Because I'm watching the East Coast feeds. And so I see a ton of them all the time. Right, right. I mean, up and down the East Coast. um, But I have to go way back in my history when I remember um, Maryland going for a Republican governor and it's not come. I mean, a Republican presidential candidate, it's not coming to me. Interesting. Um, so yeah, we, I do miss it. I do, you know, we do get, it's, it's interesting. We do get the Baltimore stations, local stations and the Washington DC stations. So I do see them on there, but you know, for Just, the most part, we're spared. <laughs> there's one more thing about American politics that fascinates me. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time on that today. Thanks, Amy. Thanks that, for having me. That's Jennifer Johnson with Global News down in the United States there. Uh, yes, today's the anniversary of 9-11. They are having, as she pointed out, mostly virtual commemoration ceremonies. Uh, there was, you know, some people in person. You had the president uh, talking in Pennsylvania about United Flight 93 there. Uh, You also had uh, the former Vice President Joe Biden, now the presidential candidate, along with the Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, They were in New York City, but most of all, they didn't want people to gather today. So a lot of that is being done online. But, you know, this date never, I think, ceases to make people have that conversation of where were you and what were you doing at that moment when you first heard. And I know a lot of people have a story. So if you'd like to share it with me, by all means, you can email me, simi at cknw.com. I remember being out for a walk. I think I was training for doing a marathon that December. And so I was getting up super early, like, well, super early back then, 5.30 in the morning, uh, and going for these really long kind of walk runs to train for that. And I was listening to the radio on my headphones when I heard and turned around and ran back home to turn on the TV. So I know everybody has a story. So like I say, you can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So you may have heard in the news in the last 24 hours that very big uh, ruling by the B.C. Supreme Court yesterday that private health care is not a constitutional right, even if wait times are too long. Now, this was a case that went on for years, something like 10 years. And sure, the current NDP government was deeply involved at the end, but the B.C. Liberal government 
also heavily involved and kind of shepherded this case, uh, you know, to court essentially and all the way through up until a couple of years ago. So both parties, both governments have been deeply involved in this. And it's likely this case is going to have implications right across Canada's healthcare system. So we wanted to talk about some of those implications. Now, joining us is Christine Sorensen, president of the BC Nurses Union. Christine, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Timmy. Now, what was your reaction and the BC Nurses Union reaction to this? We were pretty excited. You know, this really is a victory for all patients. You know, this decision upholds important sections of the BC Medicare Protection Act that ensures patients do not need to pay out of pocket for medically necessary health care. And we've been fighting this battle for almost 16 years now. Yeah, that's how long this case has kind of been dragging on and on. Were you surprised by the ruling? I know a lot of people weren't sure how this was going to go. Well, it was a long trial, almost three and a half years. Uh, And so certainly based on the ruling, 880 pages, uh, we recognized that there was a lot of uh, testimony that had to be considered. And, you know, everybody was sitting on pins and needles at the very end. But we were always hopeful uh, that the decision would would see would come to the right answer, which was that you know Canadians deserve publicly funded, publicly delivered health care and should not be forced to pay out of pocket additional expenses. Yeah, and what do you think this says about our health care system? Does this kind of reaffirm to Canadians that this is the track that we are on? Well, I think what it does say is that health care should be provided uh, in a publicly funded, publicly administered health care system uh, that patients should not have to be paying out of pocket. Uh, for medically necessary expenses. This is exactly why Medicare was created. It was because we had private health care back in the 30s and the 40s, and people were not able to pay for health care and unfortunately lost lives or uh, suffered the consequences. Uh, So that's why Medicare was put in place, so that we had a publicly funded health care system based on patient need, not on their ability to pay. I wonder, do you think the pandemic has changed any attitudes about that? Because before wait lists, you know, were a huge issue and people felt like if they want, some people felt like if they wanted to skip the queue and pay for it, then they should be able to do that. But I feel like the pandemic has kind of reaffirmed a lot of people's faith in a public health care system. Well, I certainly think the public is, is 100% behind uh, the the people who are working in our publicly funded healthcare system, the nurses, the doctors, and all the other healthcare professionals who are doing their very best every day to deliver service in this province to the patients who need it. Uh, and I certainly think that that has helped, is that they do understand uh, how valuable our publicly funded healthcare system is. So this is likely not the end. We've heard uh, from the case, the people involved in the case that they are going to be appealing this. Is this something that the BC Nurses Union will continue to follow closely? Absolutely. You know, we started this case back in back 16 years ago. BCNU began ringing the bell uh, over evidence of unchecked extra billing by private clinics back then. Uh, and we'll continue to follow this case all the way through. Uh, we believe very strongly that, you know, this has been a very thoroughly examined uh, piece of, of legislature uh, and the judge has ruled. Uh, we do not understand how this case could be appealed um, however, we'll continue to follow it all the way if we abs- if we need to. And given the wait time situation right now, where we're trying to catch up with all these surgeries that got cancelled, how do you think the system is doing, Christine? Like, what have you heard from nurses about this whole process? 
what I do know is that nurses have been fully committed through the uh, surgical restart program uh, to make sure that patients are getting the surgeries that they need uh, in a timely fashion. They are working uh, extremely hard, uh, many sacrificing personal and professional sort of opportunities to make sure that they can deliver their services. Uh, we do know that uh, uh, ORs do not run without nurses, and certainly patients after surgery require nursing care. Uh, so we are uh, committed to this, um, but we are struggling under a nursing shortage in this province, and we do not have enough operating room nurses. Uh, and that is part of, at the heart of this of this case, is that we cannot take healthcare professionals out of the public healthcare system uh, to deliver private services. We don't have enough in our public system, and we absolutely need to ha- maintain those services uh, to deliver care to patients based on need, not on their ability to pay. All right, Christine, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. That's Christine Sorensen, president of the BC Nurses Union, commenting on that BC Supreme Court ruling yesterday that said, you know what, private health care is not a constitutional right, even if wait times are too long. And this is a case that, as you heard Christine Sorensen mention, went something like 15 years from start to, well, this point. I won't say finish because uh, we've heard that the plaintiff here, Dr. Brian Day, does want to Uh, move forward with this and appeal, but we'll find out what actually happens on this. But yeah, there's a lot going on here. And there was a big sigh of relief, I think, from the government side on this yesterday, as Vaughn Palmer told us as well. So more to come on that for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, what a year it has been. And I don't say that affectionately either. And you know who really knows this? Anybody who graduated from high school. Spring of 2020 was unlike any other grad parties, grad everything just did not go off the way we would normally see. And now those same grads, many of them anyway, are headed off to another something new, and that is some form of post-secondary institution. But again, that's not going to go the way that we've always thought it was going to. So you may remember earlier this year, we met some fantastic class valedictorians from all over the province. We wanted to take a moment to catch up with some of them now as they start university this week. So we've got a couple of them with us right now. We've got Simon Eau Claire Troughton from St. Patrick Regional Secondary and Shifra Hetherington from Langley Fine Arts School. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thank Hi. you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, Simon, I'm going to start with you. What are you up to these days? Oh, man, Jimmy. Um, recently, I mean, I just wrapped up a, an amazing summer. Um, I, I got to see uh, my girlfriend all summer, and, you know, turns out we love each other madly, so that worked out great. Um, I've been checking out the movie theater recently because it's been pretty much empty. I mean, tickets are really cheap, so... If you get the chance, it's pretty dope there. Um, <laughs> okay, but Simon, yeah. what are you doing? Like, are you going back to school? Or are you going to work? What's happening? <laughs> uh, Simi, I gave you too much information. <laughs> um, currently, I am not working as of late. Um, I did do some work at the P&E part-time, but with uh, university, I've been uh, sticking with the online classes uh, full-time. And how is that? Like, had you expected to maybe be back on a campus or go to a campus? Um, not for this first semester. For a few, these next few months, uh, I am stuck doing some remote learning. And um, in, come January, I'm doing the acting program. And uh, hopefully we're going to see some on-campus learning as well. 
All right, let me go to Shifra now. So, Shifra, how has your summer been? It's been really good. I was working full-time, so that was eight hours Monday to Friday. <laughs> so that took up most of my time, but I was still able to go out and enjoy the sun, spend some quality time with family and friends. So that was really good. Right, but you are also, I would assume, off to some kind of post-secondary institution? Yes, I am now starting uh, online classes which I'm actually in dance, so it's a bit strange. Yeah. Uh, Are you disappointed by that? Like, had you been hoping to go to a campus and start that whole new experience? Yes, definitely. Especially with uh, my school. I was, I'm going to York University in Toronto, so I was hoping to move over to the Toronto and uh, oh. get to go into the studios and have that big university experience. So it's definitely been a bit of a bummer not being able to do that. So you're attending York University in Toronto, but from here at home in Metro Vancouver. Yes. So there's also the three-hour time difference, which is another thing to navigate. Yeah, a lot of the classes, some of them, I have one class at 8.45 Eastern Standard Time, so that's 5.45 hour time. Oh. (laughs) So that's a dance class too. So I'm going to be having a Zoom call with the professor and some of the other BC students. I think there's four of us, actually. And hopefully we'll be able to work out how that class will work. Yeah. Is it a, yeah. Bit, is it a bit disappointing for you, Shifra? Yeah, it's, it's definitely disappointing. Um, I danced the last little bit of my high school because uh, I was a dance major in high school. So <laughs> I kind of got that online thing with dance and I, it's not the same. You don't get that same energy with all the other dancers in the room and get to be inspired by everyone and see how they maybe move differently than you do and learn from them. Right. It's, yeah, it's definitely uh, a big difference. I can see that too. Now, Simon, this whole spring, I would imagine graduation, summer, all of it um, has not been as you'd expected. Uh, no, no, very, uh, yeah, very uh, un- unorthodox ways of doing things, I guess. But I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, that's ubiquitous right now. So I guess we're all just uh, adapting to it. But yeah, definitely, like uh, the remote learning has been uh, an interesting kind of learning curve, as is post secondary in general. So um, yeah, is it hard to, to kind of focus in on that too? You know, you've there's a lot going on, and now they're expecting you to do just as well, and you all you've got is the computer in front of you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it's kind of just yeah, trying to keep stress level down and, and just trying to um, get some time management skills in place because uh, it's um, it's particularly now with being in the comfort of their own home, I think it's easy to kind of um, yes, get distracted. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, with the multitude of distractions, it's kind of just setting up that proper uh, workspace. Okay. So do you feel like you're missing something, Simon? Uh, <laughs> I mean... I, um, there's definitely like, uh, on campus amenities that would be so nice to see in person, especially with UBC. It's kind of like a city in and of itself on campus with the library and and the cafes. And there's just something about that, um, in-person university experience that, uh, you can't help but, but crave, but, uh, obviously we get to see it eventually. Um, and, uh, being able to show off my, my immaculate fashion sense is really sad. So I just, <laughs> oh, uh, I think yeah. of all the people who are missing out on that. That is sad. Uh, Shifra, how about you? Do you feel like you're missing out on something? Uh, 
it's it i it definitely thinks that like simon was saying the amenities the university experience is something that everyone expects to be one way and now it's definitely not that <laughs> but i'm just i'm so grateful to still have something i know it's online I'm not a huge fan of staring at a screen all day right. and just sitting in my room, not being, I'm very social. I really like being around other people. So it's going to be different, kind of lose a bit of that connection of being able to meet new people in a, in a way that I'm used to being in person. So yeah, I feel like there's definitely a bit of something that's going to be not the same. Right. Definitely missing, missing that piece. Well, fingers crossed for both of you. And listen, thanks for being here today. Best of luck, okay? Thank you yeah, so absolutely. much. Absolutely, thank you. All right, good luck. That is Simon O'Claire Troughton for St. Patrick Regional Secondary. He was our valedictorian back in the spring, and so was Schiffer Hetherington from Langley Arts of uh, Langley Fine Arts School. Both of them uh, trying their hand at online post secondary right now. But as you can tell, there will be some challenges there, and we we are, we're so glad to be able to uh, catch up to them today. This is Mornings with Simi story you're going to be hearing a lot about today, but one o'clock this afternoon, the mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, is going to hold a special council meeting and it's all to address his proposed homelessness plan. We know this is a huge problem right now in the city of Vancouver and other communities too. We're seeing an increase in the number of people on their streets. So let's talk about this, what's going to happen today. Sarah Kirby Young joins us now, Vancouver city councillor. Thanks for being here this morning. Good morning, Timmy. Have you had a chance to look the proposal over? I have, yes. <laughs> okay, and your what are your thoughts? Um, I think that it's going to be a, a very um, involved and very spirited discussion today. I think there's a lot of questions um, in the motion and the way that the mayor has put it forward that, for me, it needs to be part of the conversation and need to be answered before I can make an informed decision on it. Okay, what are some of the questions that you have about it? Uh, well, for one, um, I want to know why the mayor thinks that we should go it alone um, or council should come back and why should council choose an option if we don't know that the province of the feds are going to support that option if they don't think it's to be ineffective and they're not going to fund it um, because I think everybody um, including the residents of Strathcona and everybody in the city has acknowledged this is a significant, significant issue and we need to take action but we cannot do it alone it requires all levels of government to come together and work together and this motion is a, you know, kind of let's let's just go for it, the city, regardless of whether or not we're successful in getting funding. You know, what about the facilities issue? We, we've been running this story in the news this morning, talking about for the homeless population in Vancouver, there's no, there's no washroom facilities right now. Businesses aren't letting them in. Uh, they can't go to homeless shelters because of social distancing. So there's not as much space in these facilities for them to go to. And if we want things to clean up and get better, we can't even give them a place to like wash their face and go to the bathroom. The city of Vancouver can do something about that, can't they? Yeah, it's, Washington's a really key issue, and I think that it's been uh, it's been really exacerbated by the fact that a lot of those community places uh, and social services support, such as the Gathering Place or Carnegie, had shut down during the pandemic, and that you know took away the options uh, for washrooms for people, you know, especially in the downtown east side that 
that was where they were able to uh, to use those and to go. Um, and I brought that up as to, you know, that would even be one of the issues that we're seeing with defecation um, and urine and things on businesses and, you know, on, on properties when people are trying to enter their homes. Um, so I think that that's a really important and a really real conversation um, to have. And I think getting our community facilities up and running as soon as possible is really critical. One part of this motion talks about temporarily converting city-owned buildings into emergency or shelter space. I'm really concerned about that because we're just now trying to get the community centres um, up and running, daycares open, um, and I don't want to see them be repurposed for that. I think that people really need the community centres for their mental health um, and their physical health, but they also need them for access for washrooms for everybody. Yeah, I do wonder, though, that with this motion and the debate, it, are, is it going too big when we really need to think about doing a lot of the, the little things for people? I, I think that, you know, sometimes practical and pragmatic is the way to go. And, you know, the issues that we're hearing, like you said, a lot of it relate to things like the, the impacts on the street um, that people are, are seeing um, and hearing. And I think getting washrooms out there, ASAP, is really important. It's tough. Uh, the city has deployed a number of washrooms. They get vandalized. It's expensive to service them. Um, but it's a significant issue. And it's a public health issue, especially during a pandemic. So I'd like to see that. I'd also like to just see us, quite frankly, have a really good conversation first. Um, with BC Housing in the province and say, look, what about just doing a temporary expanded winter shelter program, dramatically ramping that up at multiple locations, and would you support it and getting a sort of a, a sign of of a sort of support um, from those partners before the city plows ahead? Um, because I think that shelters can be done really quickly and really effectively. They can provide washrooms, as you said, and it can be complemented with getting additional temporary washrooms out there. How do you expect this meeting to go today? Do you think it's going to take, uh, is there any chance that there could be a vote today? We all know how city council meetings have been going. Uh, well, it's scheduled from 1 to 10 p.m. Uh, so we've got a long window here. I'm hopeful it's not going to be long. I think it is. Uh, it's not going to be short. Um, I, there's another motion on the table next week from two city councillors um, that was about a disaster relief for shelter program. Um, and so I think that um, there's going to be amendments coming forward on that. Uh, on this one, and so we're going to see a lot of amendments and a lot of discussion on the floor about it. Um, I'm also really concerned about sort of coordination with the park board because on their agenda next week, they have um, slated to enact the bylaw to not allow camping in parks. Um, and on the same meeting, they have a, a motion to not enforce that bylaw and to allow camping in parks during the pandemic. So if council takes this step today with the goal of getting people out of stress going to park and not camping in parks, are we going to be working against the park board who are saying, hey, you know what, we want to continue to allow people to camp. Uh, you just mentioned that there will be a lot of amendments today, a lot of discussion. Isn't that what people have been kind of criticizing Vancouver City Council for in the last six months? Too much discussion, too many amendments? Well, that's exactly it. And I think that's my disappointment with how this motion has come forward. Um, it came from the mayor and it's did not involve any direct outreach and conversation with councillors. I've spoken to a number of them, certainly not with me and with a number I've spoken to. Um, and I think on a topic as important as this, if we could have come together and aligned on it, that's what people are expecting. They're expecting to see that leadership, but that's not the route that the mayor chose to take. Um, and I see him tweeting out and sending out newsletters saying, hey, I hope council is going to support this. Well, I think you can get a lot more support if you just talk to people directly um, versus just playing it out in the media. Yeah, are you saying that doesn't happen then? Because that's what people would hope, that when you have an independent mayor, you guys meet about this stuff and get a sense of it before you actually go to the meeting. Uh, it, it does not happen. Um, I, and I'll speak for myself, is that no, the mayor does not reach out and have discussions. Um, and I would welcome the opportunity to do that. I think that that's really important. Um, I'd like to do that, but no, that's, uh, that has not been the approach. Well, thank you for your time on this today. Thanks, Vivi. 
All right, so we're talking about this homelessness plan that Vancouver City Council is going to be debating today, not a moment too soon for all the people who've been talking and dealing with this. That's at 1 o'clock today, uh, and it's scheduled to go until 10 o'clock tonight. We just talked to Sarah Kirby Young about that. Well, what do other councillors think about it? How are they feeling? What is their approach going to be? Well, just moments ago, our contributor Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to catch up with Vancouver City Councillor Jean Swanson about today's meeting, and here's what she said. Councillor Swanson, of course, you're going to have a behind-the-scenes view at the council meeting that's being held today, but for the general public, what can we expect to happen behind those doors? Well, in my dreams, it would be a way to give people who are homeless some options that are better than what they have for the winter and to basically drastically reduce homelessness. I don't know if that's going to happen. There's a problem of money, but... That would be my dream. Talking about the issue of money, in the mayor's plan, he requested that much of this funding come from the federal or provincial level. But do you think that's realistic? Do do you think that those levels of government are going to play ball here? The feds should play ball because they've been completely missing in action when it comes to homelessness. First they say, oh, we have a human right to housing, and then they don't fund it. And as a result, we have massive numbers of homeless people. So they should come to the table. But if they don't, I think the city has to use its own resources. Of the options that were released in the mayor's plan, which option would you like to see go ahead? Which one do you think would be the most effective? The absolute best option would be to lease hotel rooms, empty hotel rooms with bathrooms. We have, because of COVID, people need their own bathrooms because if you have to share a bathroom, that means you're in a congregate setting like a nursing home where COVID spreads faster. So lease the hotels, offer them to people who are homeless. I think that would be the best and have different hotels for people with different needs and different management styles in the hotels. So you could have some that would be peer managed, some that would be managed by a nonprofit, some would be for people with pets, some would be for people with partners or kids, um, some would be for people who use drugs or for people who don't use drugs. And the other thing is we have to get enough rooms for basically all the homeless people who are on the street because if we don't, They're just going to be, the ones that are left, they're just going to have to tent somewhere. And that isn't safe for them. And it's clearly becoming untenable for a lot of residents and businesses and the homeless as well. That is Vancouver City Councillor Jean Swanson speaking with our contributor Nikki Reitmeyer. There's a lot of attention being paid to this council meeting this afternoon, 1 o'clock, called by Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart because it feels like it's been talked about forever you know, whether it is the campers who have saying who are saying we need help, whether it's the residents in the Strathcona area saying you've got to help us too and you've got to help, you know, these campers or businesses who are saying it's untenable. Everybody has been clamoring for some kind of action, but is today the day they're actually going to see anything happen? Keep it tuned in right here for more on that.